Our scripture text this morning is Luke 24, and we're going to read from verse 36 through verse 49. Believe it or not, we're still reading about Easter Sunday. Uh, At least the first part of the text that we are reading this morning is still about that very first day of the week, that day when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we're at the end of the day, and Jesus is coming and appearing uh, to his disciples, and then it shifts right around verse 44. Um, from the specific evening uh, to a more general discussion of the things that Jesus taught to his disciples from that day and for the next 40 days uh, until, he, uh, until he returned to his Father in heaven. Um, so that's uh, 36 through 49. Now, if you want to open up to that uh, in your own Bibles, I would encourage it. The words will be on the screen uh, behind me as I read through. If you want to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then I think you can find uh, Luke 24, 36, on page 1126 of those Bibles. And if you're able, let me invite you to, to stand while I read this. And when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond with me by saying, thanks be to God. Luke 24, starting at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, they being Jesus' disciples and these things being the the appearance of Jesus to two of them on the road to Emmaus. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Think about it for a second with me. What would you say you need most in your life to make it a fulfilling life? What do you need most? What is your greatest need? Something that if you possessed it, everything around you would be, would be different. It's an interesting question. And I think most of us, at least reflexively, kind of start with, if someone were to put us on the spot with that, if some, you know, camera were to show up, you know, on the, on the street corner and, you know, we had to just quick, oh, you got, you got one second. I think most of us reflexively would kind of, you know, be thinking, even if we wouldn't say it out loud, we'd be thinking like uh, a million dollars, a new house, a remodeled kitchen, right? Or kids, what do you think, right? What would you, what, what, what would you need? What would be really cool? What would transform your life, right? Some sort of, some sort of cool new toy, the latest video game, uh, maybe for school to be over now, 
Right? Maybe, maybe box seat uh, tickets to the, to the Yankees game or front row seats when Dude Perfect comes into town next. Right? Maybe that would be like the greatest need that you would have. That would just totally, those are the easy answers. Right? But I've never known anyone actually towards the end of their lives, looking back, who have major regrets about not finding those things. Now, there's, there's something deeper. And what would that be? What are the greatest needs in anyone's lives? The, the, the things that our hearts are really striving for. Even when we settle for lukewarm kind of wishes like cars and kitchens and video games. Now, there's, I've listed six of them in the bulletin. Six things that I think we strive for, looking for them in lots of different places. Six things that can only be really found when you listen to the resurrected Jesus. Now, you think that's a stretch? Right? I don't think so. All of those things, all of these things are things that the resurrected Jesus brings to us in what we just read. Because it's the resurrected Jesus who offers us true hope of peace, of healing, companionship, wisdom, forgiveness, and purpose. Those six things. Now, we don't, we don't feel the need for every single one of those things at the exact same time with the exact same intensity. But to one degree or another, we all feel the need for these things. And together, they form the backbone of what Jesus was communicating to his followers during those 40 days between his resurrection that we've been looking at the last few weeks and his ascension into heaven that we'll look at next week. Are you ready? Here's what we've been looking for. Six things. The first thing, peace. The problem of anxiety in our world is huge. Last October, the American Psychiatric Association reported that 27% of adults who were surveyed said that on most days, on most days, they were so stressed that they couldn't function. 27% of, of adults. That number was 46% for adults under the age of 35. And and there's separate studies showing that it's even worse for teenagers. What's the cause of all this? Lots of things. But the big categories that most people cite when they're asked, why are you you so stressed that on most days you can't function? The big things, they aren't hard to guess. Uncertainty about the future. Stress about finances. Isolation from close relationships with other people. Fear of what other people think of you. Okay, now step out of the 21st century and, and, and surveys from last year and step back into the room with these disciples in Luke chapter 24. What do you think they would have been anxious about, do you think? Uncertainty about the future? You bet. Right? Stress about finances? Yeah, it's not easy to make a living if you're an outcast in that world, an outcast from both Roman and Jewish society. And that's what they would have been. Right? Isolation from close relationships, right? Yeah. Many of them had given up everything to follow Jesus. Right? Fear of others? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Their leader has just been executed as a criminal by Rome and as a blasphemer by the religious authorities. Right? And it's into that anxious setting that Jesus walks into the room. Actually, it says in verse 36, he's just simply stood among them. Now, I'm not exactly sure how that happened any more than we can be exactly sure how he vanished from the house in, Ima- uh, in, the, uh, in, Ima- in Emmaus in, in verse 31, right? But we do know that he was just suddenly there. There he was. And the first thing he says to them is what? Peace. Peace to you. 
Now, yes, this was a relatively common greeting in the culture of the, of the time. It would have been shalom in, in, in Hebrew. And even today, we get some of that. Sometimes people will greet each other with, you know, peace. Right? When they leave each other, you know, say, hey, peace. Right? But as common as that word was, as a regular greeting, the meaning behind the word was incredibly deep. And it was incredibly significant that this is the very first thing that Jesus says to them. Shalom is a, is a, is a very rich word that's not just the absence of conflict. It's a full restoration of relationship. It is, it is the world put back into full harmony with each other. That's the peace that he was saying. Peace to you. In relation to God specifically, it is his specific blessing on his people. It's, it's a state of complete contentment based on a right relationship with God. See, when you have shalom in its full biblical context, right, it, it, you aren't anxious you aren't unsettled because everything is restored. Everything is, is resolved. And even if it is a common greeting, because of this deeper understanding of what that word meant, it's absolutely remarkable that these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Because, because this might be a common greeting, but this was an extraordinary time. Right, because first of all, these disciples are still basically in hiding. Right? And the last time that almost all of them had seen Jesus, they had fallen asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he had specifically asked them to stay awake with them. And then after he was arrested, they promptly scattered in all different kinds of directions and ran away and hid. And now Jesus shows up and he doesn't say a word about any of those things. He tells them basically, don't worry about that. He offers them peace. He doesn't scold them. He brings a blessing. Now it's also remarkable because I think Luke, in the way that he tells his story, is coming full circle in, in, in Jesus' mission. He's saying this is bringing to resolution what had always been the plan. Jesus is, is the one who brings peace. Way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 79, when John the Baptist was born, his father, Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied that his son, John, would make a way for the Lord's Messiah, who would be Jesus, and he would guide our feet into the way of peace. This is going to happen. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field, remember what they said? Glory to the God in the highest, and on earth, peace. When the baby Jesus was presented at the temple, the righteous old man Simeon, who had waited and waited and waited to hold the Messiah, to see the Messiah, takes Jesus in his arms and praises God and says, Lord, you, have ne- you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And when Jesus sends out his disciples in Luke chapter 10, he tells them whenever they enter a house, the first thing that they were to do was to say, peace be to this house. And it's not in Luke, but in John 14, when Jesus is teaching his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, he tells them not to let their hearts be troubled, not to let them be afraid, because he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And now Jesus, after his death, at a moment of maximum anxiety and troubled hearts, Jesus appears in a locked room among a bunch of scared disciples, and the first thing he says to them is exactly what they needed to hear. He says to them, peace to you. Are you anxious and afraid? Please talk to someone if you are. Please talk to, to me, but, but talk to someone who can point you to the ultimate peace, the restoration of all things that comes from a resurrected Jesus. Because if you're anxious and afraid, then you need the resurrected Jesus who comes to you and says, peace.
Now, the next thing we all need, the next thing we all seek, healing. Verse 38, 39, 40. Are you struggling with a physical condition of some kind? A handicap, maybe from, maybe from birth, maybe as the result of, of accident or illness, right? Something that limits you, that, re, that, 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 that doesn't allow you to physically do everything that, that you would like to do. May, maybe it hurts. <laughs> and that's frustrating because your body seems to be your enemy, right? Into a locked room, into your locked room perhaps, Jesus walks and he holds out his hands and he says, see, and he says, touch me. Once again, we see his patience. Verse 37, it says the disciples were still frightened, even though he was standing right there. And they thought he was a spirit. Jesus, the friendly ghost, that's what they thought. And he doesn't yell at them. He calls them up to him. And like you would with little children, he says, here, look, look, look closely. Remember the nails? Here's my hands. Remember the spear? Here's my side. It's me. It's really me. I'm alive. My body, my body is restored. Jesus had a body. Not a a replacement body, a raised body. Slightly different physical properties, it seems, but it was a real physical body. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes through an extended argument explaining that because Jesus was raised from the dead in a new resurrection body, then we too will be raised from the dead ultimately in a new resurrection body. It'll be different in some respects. It will no longer be subject to to decay, but it will be real. So if you're in a body that is broken and doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to work, and that's all of us, or it will be if we live long enough, if that's you, you need the resurrected Jesus who comes to you and says, look, touch, this is what it will be like. Now, next, we have a need for what I call it in the outline, um, companionship. Now, this is what I mean. I don't know if that's the best word to capture what I'm trying to say. But we all need someone to depend on, someone who will never leave us. And our world is littered with reminders of how badly we need that. Right? It's a reminder, and, it's, and it is personal. It's personal for, for, for all of us. It's personal it may be especially felt right now by some, of, by some of you. For example, right, we live in a world right, where, the, where the breakup of relationships is just increasingly common. And, and, and there are legitimate grounds for, biblical grounds for, for, for divorce, but every time a marriage ends, it creates a wound that represents a, a, a breaking of a commitment and, and, and instills in, in people a tendency to mistrust. It's understandable, but that's what happens. Or another example, right? There's a, there's a need for, for loving foster care. And I, and I know several families who have committed themselves to things like that, but, but it's a result of brokenness. Every year in New Jersey, hundreds of teenagers age out of the system who have never experienced the stability and the commitment of a permanent home. Or, or even without those things, and this is moving closer to the situation in Luke 24, right? Let's say you've had a really close relationship with someone, right? Maybe it was a faithful husband or wife, right? There wasn't the brokenness of, of divorce. It was someone that you were really able to share life with, maybe for a long time, maybe for a short time, but now they're gone, right? Or maybe, you're, maybe, maybe you, you grew up or you are growing up in, in parents who were loving parents and it was a loving family and, and you, and you were, had, a, had a deep relationship with them, but now, now maybe they're gone. 
And whether you had a long time or a short time with them, the pain, the loss of relationship from someone that you really needed, that pain is real. And it isn't their fault, but the person who, the person who, who was the object of so much of our love has now left us to ourselves. That's how the disciples would have been feeling. There's an interesting phrase in verse 41. It says that when Jesus appeared in front of his disciples, they disbelieved for joy. Right? They disbelieved for joy. What does that mean? It's not a common phrase, but most of us actually, if you think about it, can understand the idea. Um, I don't know if, you're a, uh, if, if you've ever watched some of them, but I'm a sucker for those, um, those military reunification videos. You know the videos where, where a soldier has been uh, deployed overseas, particularly when they've been in a dangerous war zone where their safety, where their return maybe was a real question. And, and, and he shows up at a, at a school event or a sports game uh, to surprise his wife or surprise his kids or surprise his or her mom, right? I go right to tears every time. I mean, it's just every single time. I just melt. And most of the time, the family members, when they see their loved one right there, they run to him or her. It's like a full sprint sometimes. But there's actually a decent number of them, if you watch enough of them, and I have. If you watch enough of them, there's a decent amount where the person who's surprised is just frozen. Right? You'd expect them to kind of run, but they can't, they can't move. Right? So they, they like cover their mouth, and they're just like paralyzed right where they're standing. They recognize the person that they've been worried they've never, they'd never see again, but they're overwhelmed by the unexpected, unbelievable, you might even call it, reality of what they're experiencing, right? They're disbelieving for joy. You can't believe it's true. A restored relationship with someone in whom you had made and with whom you have a huge emotional investment, but you feared that you had lost. But now it's restored. When Jesus asks for something to eat in verse 41, there's probably several things going on in that question, right? One, he may be hungry. That's legit. It's been a long day, right? Two, he was probably continuing to make the point about being real and physical, right? Ghosts don't eat broiled fish. Neither do figments of your imagination. But thirdly, it's important to remember the significance of eating in that culture, and the biblical significance of sharing a meal together. Because there are other things that Jesus could have done to demonstrate his physicality. Right? Kids, this might be a really fun activity with your parents later. Try to think of different ways that Jesus could have shown his disciples that he was real and physical besides eating. Right? He could have asked someone, I don't know, these are just some of the things I love. He could have thought, asked someone to like, hey, throw me a stick, I'll catch it. Or, or, or maybe he could have said, like, watch, I can make footprints in the dirt. Look, see? Or, or, or he could have, like, said, give me some water. I'll dump it on my head. Look, it gets wet. My hair gets wet, right? What are some other things? Think about that stuff. But also think about, he didn't do any of those things. He ate with them. You remember the thing, the last thing that he had done with them in a closed room. The last time he had been with all of them together in a closed room, it was back on Thursday night, back in Luke 22. What did he do? He had dinner with them. And now he's back. The fellowship of the table, huge in that culture, is back, unbroken. The relationship restored. And ultimately pointing to a great feast at the final resurrection 
for everyone. That's what it says in Revelation 19, that when the day comes for all of Jesus' disciples, from every age and from every place, when we all get our resurrection bodies, we're going to have a big, giant meal. It's what the prophet Isaiah had talked about hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus when he said that at the final resurrection, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods. And it's not primarily about the food. It's about everyone who will be gathered around that table in the presence of the host. Are you alone? Or do you feel that way? The church should be a picture of companionship, but the resurrection will bring that fellowship and that companionship, it will bring it in full measure. Now next, what else do we have a need for? We have a need for wisdom, right? Now this is what I mean. We all long for an understanding of how the world fits together. We all want to know what our place is in human history. Where do we fit? What's the big story that hold all of our, holds all of our little stories together? What's the key that helps us understand everything else? And there are some in our world today who would say that there is no such thing. In fact, some people say that you should beware of people who say they have a story that fits everything together. That you should beware of anyone who says that there is some kind of grand narrative or some sort of totalizing narrative, the philosophers would call us. And this, and this isn't new. Right? Back in 1971, in fact, the philosopher uh, Jean-Francois Léotard, in his work, he wrote a book called The Postmodern Condition, 1971. He used this phrase that has become repeated and well-known, describing the postmodern view of the world as incredulity towards metanarratives. That's a philosophical mouthful, right? Incredulity towards meta-narratives. In other words, don't trust anything that attempts to explain everything. Now, as Christians, we should avoid being arrogant and rude when it comes to our view that we believe explains everything. But make no mistake about it, a grand narrative that explains everything is exactly what Jesus was teaching His disciples. Now, I won't go back through it because it's what we looked at in detail last week. But in verses 44, 45, and 46, it summarizes what Jesus was teaching his disciples over those 40 days after his resurrection. He basically did with them the same thing he did with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus that we looked at last week. In other words, he started with the very beginning of human history, at the very start of the books of Moses in Genesis, and he showed them how everything that has happened needed to happen for God to bring into place the plan that he had designed for the world. The big story of God's rescue plan that was accomplished through the life, the death, and finally the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what the resurrected Jesus does. He gives us an understanding of how the big story of the world fits together. And my only additional point this week to what we said last week is that not only does Jesus give us that big story of how things fit together, we need Him to. Because as much as we say that we have a mistrust or ought to have a mistrust and incredulity towards meta-narratives, everybody actually still looks for one. We all still look for something that will explain the world around us, right? Even to say, in fact, that there is no purpose, no design, no meaning to human history. Right, which would be the postmodern view. Even to say that is to claim that that is the correct understanding and explanation for the world. In other words, even to argue that human existence has no meta narrative is, in fact, itself a meta narrative. So everyone needs one. And in fact, everyone has one. And whether, whether they're conscious of it or not, everyone argues in favor of theirs being the best one. 
Now, where does that leave us then? How do we decide? How do we figure out which ones we should believe? How do we know which view of the world is correct if everyone is arguing for a different view? Right? How can we know which one of them is, is true? Well, all the philosophers, all the kings, all the teachers throughout all of human history who have attempted to give us a grand explanation for how everything fits together, all of them have one thing in common. They're all dead, except for one. There is one man who died but didn't stay dead, a philosopher, a teacher, and a king who as a result of his resurrection has a great deal more credibility than anyone else who claimed a meta-narrative because he actually validated his meta-narrative by rising from the dead. Do you need an understanding of the meaning and the story of the world? The resurrected Jesus has the answer. Next thing, there's only two more. One of the greatest needs of humanity is forgiveness. And this one actually is foundational of all the needs. For Jesus to explain in verse 47 that his life, death, and resurrection makes it possible for the forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed to all the nations, for him to claim that is absolutely revolutionary. And it is the very foundational need that everyone has, the forgiveness of our guilt. Now, at first glance, it may not seem that everyone feels that need for forgiveness equally. In fact, if you walk around, it seems in the world today that there's a lot of people who really don't feel all that guilty about everything, who don't really see it, feel like they have a need for forgiveness. Now, there are other places in the Bible where we could go where it goes into a lot greater detail about the depth of our, of our sin, about our guilt before God, and makes that case and helps us understand, wow, it really is a lot worse than we might actually think. But for now, let me just point out that you can try to live in a world where you have no guilt, but you won't succeed. In other words, some people have wrongly assumed that if you could just escape, uh, just, if we just could escape the restrictions of, of morality, specifically religious morality, if we could just remove those restraints, right, because those are the things that make us feel guilty, if we could just take them away, we wouldn't feel guilty anymore. Guilt would no longer be a problem. We would no longer feel as if we don't measure up to something if you just got rid of all those religious rules and restraints. But see, what's interesting is that's, that's not actually the way it's played out. It's just not true. Uh, Wilford McClay is a professor of history at the University of Oklahoma. He wrote a journal article back in 2017. It was picked up by the New York Times. And he said, he talked about how the struggle to make sense of guilt is really an interesting one because, because guilt, he says, is strangely persistent in our modern society. It's strange, he said, because while in our modern society moral restraint has lessened, in other words, right, our view of the, the, the rules and stuff, we've kind of cast them aside more and more, he said, actually, even though that's been true, our awareness of guilt has actually grown. He says that as we have experienced an increased prosperity in society, we actually feel increasingly guilty as we consider the difference between what's possible for us to do and what we actually do. Now, he's speaking entirely and completely in secular terms, but this is what he writes. Listen, he says, whatever donation I make to a charitable donation, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough, give to the poor enough, support medical research enough, or otherwise do the things that could render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. You see the irony in what he's saying? 
in what Wolfram McClay is saying, the modern world has actually increased our sense of guilt while at the same time taking away any resource for removing that guilt. Because as the modern world attempts to remove the God before whom we are guilty, it ironically removes at the very same time the only one who can truly offer forgiveness from that sense of guilt that we feel no matter what. You see the problem? We're increasingly aware of our guilt but with nothing to do about it. But Luke offers us something here. The resurrected Jesus whose perfect life can be the substitute for our imperfection, whose death can make atonement for our guilt, whose resurrection proves that our record has been wiped clean before the only judge in the entire universe who ultimately counts. So that when we confess and repent of our sins, John writes in 1 John 1, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you need forgiveness? The resurrected Jesus has the answer for you. Now, finally, last thing, one last thing, and this sets us up for the next month or so really well as we're going to go into May Missions Month. Something we all need to make sense of this world, and that's purpose. Simon & Schuster, one of the largest publishing companies in the world, estimates that its uh, its book that it published by Rick Warren called Purpose Driven Life has sold more than 50 million copies since it was first released in 2002. 50 million. That is huge in the publishing world. That's, that's a lot. By comparison, um, Charlotte's Web, E.B. White's classic you know, book, Charlotte's Web, that everybody has kind of read or you've heard of, right, about the little spider and the pig. And, right? It has sold 50 million copies as well, but it was released in 1952 with a 50-year head start on Purpose Driven Life. And I don't know what you think about Purpose Driven Life or Rick Warren. We can have theological distinctions and differences here and there. But the basic premise of what he's talking about there, about finding your primary purpose in living for the glory of God rather than in living for your own glory, that is radically countercultural in our world. And yet, interestingly enough, on the other hand, resonating so deeply with people who would be outside of even the traditional Christian book kind of audience. Why? Why does it resonate to offer someone a life that has purpose? Because we were built for a cause. We were built to to live for something bigger than ourselves. And the resurrected Jesus gives us one. A big one. The most important mission in history. To bear witness to the message of forgiveness and the message of a forever relationship with the God who made you. That is made available by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and received by repentance and faith. That's the job we have, to proclaim that message to a world who needs that answer. Now, how do we proclaim it? Jesus talks about some of the things here. How do we do it? Right? We do it as a witness, not primarily as a debater. Right? There's a place for reason. There's a pra- place for, for loving arguments. But we are not, first of all, J.C. Ryle says, we are not, first of all, orators, enthusiasts, or teachers. We are, first of all, he says, witnesses. Now, to whom do we proclaim this? Proclaim it to all nations, not just some of them, right? not just the ones we like, not the ones, just the ones who share our political goals, not just the ones who share our culture, not the ones who look like us, all of them, all nations. And for whom do we proclaim it? Right? For the Lord. We proclaim in His name, it says in verse 47, in the name of Jesus. In other words, it's not, a, it's not news about us that we're proclaiming, it's news about Him that we're proclaiming. And we proclaim it with God's power, not with our power. 
Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of my Father, right? That's the Holy Spirit he's referring to, right? More on the Holy Spirit in, in, in a few weeks. But for now, note that it isn't our wisdom, it isn't our skill, it isn't our articulate arguments that leads anyone to repentance and faith. It's the power of God through the Holy Spirit bringing fruit to our faithful witness. Do you understand the news of the resurrection of Jesus, the answers that he gives to the basic questions that all of us ask, the needs that all of us have? Do you understand the news that Jesus brings to be that important? Do you see it as the answer to all of our needs? And then are are you willing to give yourself to a cause greater than yourself so that that news can be proclaimed? David Platt is a, a pastor in Northern Virginia. And he wrote in a book a number of years ago about a good friend who had spent some time in Southeast Asia visiting remote villages there. And he asked someone in those villages, his friend who was there visiting in these villages, he says, how were you created? Right, kids, if you've ever heard of the the children's catechism, it's like that first question, right? Who made you? He asked them, who made you? How were you created? And they said, we don't know. And he asked them, what happens to you when you die? And they said, no one has come to, to, to tell us about that yet. This was a little discouraging to him, but it was eye-opening. He went into another village where he heard, asked the same questions, got the same answers. No one had ever heard about Jesus. And then the villagers there in that, that village invited him to sit down and have a meal with him. It was, very, it was hospitality. And, they, and he said, yes, of course, I'd love to eat with you. And they bring out for this meal for him, as if they had kind of been saving it, um, get this, a Coke, a can of Coca-Cola, classic red can. And it dawned on him as he sat there in this remote village in Southeast Asia that a soft drink company from Atlanta, Georgia, had done a better job of getting brown sugar water to these people than the Church of Jesus Christ had done in getting the gospel to them. It's fascinating analysis to kind of go through the historic advertising slogans for Coca-Cola through the years. It's changed, it's shifted, but there's one recurring theme, at least over the last 50 years or so, that they keep coming back to, that Coke is the real thing. That that was was 1969, they started with that slogan, the real thing. And it's had all kinds of variations. In 1985, they called it the real choice. In 1990, you were told, you can't beat the real thing. In um, 2003, it was just simply real. In 2005, you were encouraged to make it real. More recently, 2021, they they used real magic, whatever that means. Brilliant marketing, though, for brown sugar water. Because it's trying to tap into something that they know we need, and that is something that's real. Something tangible that brings satisfaction. But, of course, even they know they can't deliver on that level of a promise. It was the uh, 1976 slogan that said, Coke adds life. A soft drink can't do that, really. Can't give you peace. Can't bring you healing. Can't give you a coherent story of the world. Can't give you an ultimate purpose. Certainly can't forgive you and remove your guilt. Only the resurrected Jesus can do that. Everything else will leave you unsatisfied. Only He is the real thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Jesus not just to live and to die, that we needed both of those things, but to rise again so that we could see in His resurrection the answer to all of our needs, the hope that we too 
will live forever in your presence, that our sins and our guilt can be removed, that we can have purpose and meaning, true forever relationship with you, a story and a reason for why everything happens around us, even in the midst of the confusion. Lord, let us look to the resurrected Jesus with faith, faith that you are working all things for your glory and for our good, even when it is not seen and not understood in the day-to-day. We pray, Lord, that this will be felt by everyone who is here. In Jesus' name, amen.